The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. We've been finding courage from 2 Corinthians. Courage for all sorts of incredible needs. And I just love the, the riches of this letter and giving us strength to face what's difficult Courage for nearly everything we need. And in this morning, it's courage to reconcile. Courage to reconcile. Now, I think the word reconcile has two major meanings. Uh, what, what do you come up with in your mind? One might be kind of a financial use of the word. You gotta reconcile accounts. So pay the bills, bring in what's supposed to come, move the money where it's supposed to go, make sure it adds up, it's straight, it's reconciled. Now, in all honesty, how many of you does it take courage to try to reconcile your accounts? <laughs> Dear God, help me. <laughs> right? Um, that's not exactly what we're talking about this morning. So I don't know if that's a relief to you or not. Uh, there's another meaning to the word reconciliation, which has to do with relationships. So you had a relationship that used to be face-to-face. It was warm. It was close. It was enjoyable. And then something happened, and... Both, both parties have turned. Now it's broken. It's over. It feels empty. And so to reconcile is to turn those shoulders and bring those faces back to one another. It's to restore a broken relationship. Now I don't know if there's ever been a text that's more relevant than something about broken relationships. Anybody have one of those? Um, you ever experienced that in your life? Of course we have. It happens everywhere, whether it's coworkers or friends or family members or a spouse or a church member. There are things that happen, things that are done. There are words that are said, and before you know it, it can escalate and it can grow. And where faces used to be turned toward one another, the shoulders turn, the heads turn, and before you know it, we're broken. And what, what is needed? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. And it's not just a need for our relationships. Doesn't the world need this desperately? Nations and cultures at enmity with one another, races um, hating one another, not trusting one another, hurting one another, brokenness. Uh, you look at the political divide in our country. One side versus the other. The conversation feels mostly like slander nearly half the time. We don't trust each other. We won't look at each other. Um, need reconciliation, not to mention our own everyday relationships. It's a desperate need. So if you think of your life and where reconciliation is needed, what would it take to make that first step? Well, I know it's... Complicated, difficult, but I know one thing it would take is courage. <laughs> courage. Is, not, is that not one of the scariest things we're called to do? Step into where there's hostility, brokenness, anger, hurt. Take the first step to try to bring the faces back to one another. Um, another question this may raise is, is why this is such an epic need. Why is it everywhere? Why is it that humans can't seem um, to stay face to face? Why is it that we can't relate? We can't love? 
The biblical authors would have a very interesting answer to that question. The reason our human relationships are so broken is there's another greater, more important relationship that's broken. The reason these uh, side-to-side relationships are out of joint is because our vertical relationship with God is out of joint. You remember the biblical story, right? From the beginning, what were we made for when it comes to God? Face-to-face, right? His face. Your face, right there together, enjoying that, a relationship with the God who made you, submitted and satisfied in him, and yet we believe the lie, right? Who turned first? We turned our shoulders. We believe the lie in that garden, right? God's no good. God's not trustworthy. God's not generous. And so we turn and we say, we're going to replace him. We're going to put something else in his place. And with that great evil came more and more evil. God is holy and just. What does he have to do in the face of our evil? He turns. He can't can't abide evil. He can't accept wickedness and his holiness. And so the reason all these varieties of human relationships are broken is that Our core relationship with God is broken. What used to be face-to-face, what was meant to be face-to-face, has now turned into enmity. We don't trust him. We don't like him in our sin. And in his holiness, he owes us justice. Well, all that adds up to this beautiful thing we get to see today. What does our God love to do? He's a reconciling God. He is a reconciling God. He's a God that takes the first step. He takes every step at great cost to himself to turn the shoulders around, to bring face to face back to reality. He's a reconciling God. More than that, who is it that he's including in this ministry of reconciliation? He takes those he's reconciled to himself And sends us out with the same mission, to be agents, ambassadors of reconciliation. So here's what we want to see today. Number one, we want to be reconciled to God. Number two, we want to find the courage to be reconcilers. This is our calling. This is at the heart of who we are, belonging to him. Courage to reconcile. So I'm going to, I think we see three major places in this passage where we can find courage to reconcile. Number one, might not be what you anticipate, courage from fear. That's right, courage from fear. A healthy fear give you courage to reconcile. Number two, courage from love. To be so overwhelmed, compelled by God's love, it gives us courage. Number three, Courage from what God is doing. We'll see that in two parts. What God has done all on his own for us and what he includes us in doing as well. So courage to reconcile. Courage from fear. Courage from love. Courage from what God is doing. Are you ready? Yeah, we're ready. You sound ready. (laughs) Let's go. Number one, courage from fear. Let's start at verse nine. Courage from fear. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to what? Please him. Please him. 
Verse 10, for why would you really want to make it your aim to please God? Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. If you remember last week, we were looking for courage in, in and through suffering. And one source of courage for Paul in suffering is the knowledge of what's coming when Jesus returns. A new body, eternal glory. So on his mind is the end when Jesus comes back. And that seems also to have another reality in his mind. What is going to happen to each one of us, verse 10 says. For we must all... So here I think all means all. Appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, in case we weren't sure what all meant, now we know, each one may receive what is due. Here's the reality. You're going to stand before Jesus. Each one. You individually are going to stand before Jesus. Jesus is the only one with the might and the right to have you stand before him. The might, he's the eternal son of God. He rose from the dead in victory. He has the wisdom, he has the power to know what each one of us has done in the body. I can fake you out, I can fake myself out. Jesus sees clearly into every motive, every thought, every word, every feeling. I'm gonna stand before him he has the might. He also has the right. You're going to stand before the one who actually lived the human life perfectly. And that's just, a, that's just really tough on excuses. You know, something comes up and you'll be like, but it was so hard. And he'll be like, hard. Like flogging crucifixion hard? Because I know about that. And you'll be like, oh. He has the right. He lived the perfect life, and he's going to give you an answer for each thing you've done. Now, how are you supposed to understand this? This is a kind of a complicated question for a Christian, right? Because on one side, you're like, hey, well, wait, I thought the whole part about what Jesus did helps me out with this. It does, okay? So number one, if you stand before Christ and you haven't turned to Christ to save you, honest truth this is a bad moment, okay? This is a bad moment where his holiness lands on what you've thought and said and felt and done. And if you're on your own, just what you've done is trouble. It's judgment. It's his just wrath. You don't have to be there on your own. You don't have to be there. If you look to Christ and what he's done, his life, his death, his resurrection, you trust in him, you know and this is part of the whole context here, right? We're waiting for eternal glory, God's faithful grace. You know that there's no condemnation for you. So we know that as a Christian, when you stand before Christ and your life is, I don't know how you want to say it, reviewed, weighed, all the negative, all the sin, it will not stand there as condemning you. It won't. But in this passage, Paul very clearly seems to say it will stand there in a way in correction, um, as evidence, I think your whole life is going to be an, an, as evidence to, did you trust Christ or not? 
And I don't know about you, but I'm going to have plenty to regret in that moment. Plenty. Have you, have you heard these words, sins of commission, sins of omission? Commission, all the bad stuff I did I wasn't supposed to do. All the stuff I said I shouldn't have said. What's bad about God knowing your heart too is all the motives I had I shouldn't have had. Oh, so even if externally it looked okay, he saw what I was really doing it for. I got, I got problems. Sins of omission. I don't even know where to start. You know what sins of omission are, right? Good things you should have done that you didn't. I think that's where we really lose out. You know, there's a way to love people. I didn't steal from nobody, Lord. Oh, cool. That's good. Did you give to those who needed? You mean I was supposed to not only just not steal, I was supposed to give? Yeah. I, I didn't hit anybody, Lord. Did you tell them the gospel? What, you mean my neighbors, like the people I work with, people I know? I thought a missionary was going to fly in for that. Wait, isn't Pastor Matt supposed to not only know my address and phone number, but all my neighbors' address and phone numbers? And isn't he responsible to go to all my neighbors and tell them the gospel? He is my pastor. Maybe, sins of omission, I don't know. I think, I think Jesus might say, you were the missionary I flew in. I did fly in a missionary. That was you. And I'm gonna answer for that. That's why Paul says in verse 11, therefore knowing, look, you're gonna stand before Jesus. If that lands on you at all right now, you're knowing the fear of the Lord, the sobriety of standing before him. Knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? Verse 11, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade others. Others, now let me back up just a moment. This is not a fear of the Lord that's a terror that runs from the Lord. It's not a fear of the Lord that is so, like a, like a monster under the bed, run away. No, it's not, it's not that at all. In fact, you see, you see in verse nine what the fear is. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to do what? To please him. The fear of the Lord is this deep passion to please the Lord. Because you love him, you respect him, you're in awe of him, you know he's the savior, he's the king, you know you're gonna stand before him, you know, you know he sees and he knows and you're gonna, you're gonna look in his face one day and you wanna please the people you love. I wanna please him. And if you wanna please him, guess what you're gonna do in verse 11? You're gonna persuade others. You're gonna tell them the gospel. You're gonna tell them the gospel. This is what Paul is after. The fear of the Lord gives him courage to be a reconciler. You think it's true that a healthy fear can overcome a lesser fear? Anybody have a fear of heights? Imagine yourself on the fifth floor looking out the window, you're like backing up, okay? Imagine now the building's on fire Fire department's down there with whatever it is they put together so you can jump on it. 99% of the time, you're never making that jump. Like just for fun, you're not gonna be like, hey, let's put it, make a YouTube video. You're not jumping. But when the building's on fire and you start to feel that heat on your backside, 
Guess what you will do? You will jump. You will jump. One fear, a healthy fear, outweighed another fear. Look at it in relationships, okay? You're in a close relationship. Oh, this hits home. Don't do this, Pastor Matt. Don't say it. I'm going to. I'm in it too. I'm in it with you. You have this, you know, it's kind of weighing over you, haunting you. You know you need to work on yourself and on your relationship with somebody else. You know. You know you're being a little too apathetic. You know you're being a little too prideful. You know you're being a little too stubborn. But you're afraid to work on it. It's hard. It's hard to talk, hard to confess, hard to say you're sorry. You're afraid to do it. One day you wake up and you think, this might be dying. I may lose this person. And that fear of like, what am I doing? What am I doing? That fear of that ultimate loss may wake you up to do what? Face the lesser fear. You know what? It's time to get to work. A good, healthy fear can overcome a secondary fear. You and I, what are we afraid to do? We're afraid to reconcile. We're afraid to be ministers of reconciliation. We're afraid to share the gospel. Paul's like, hey, I'm afraid too sometimes. It hurts sometimes. But guess what? Guess where you're going to stand at the end? You're going to stand before the judge of the earth. And if you're in him, no, not in condemnation, but is written. I think Paul would say here, is condemnation the only language you listen to? Or don't you love Jesus? And if you fear him, you want to please him. And couldn't that oomph be enough to push you, a good healthy fear, to push you to be a reconciler? Look what Jesus said will happen, Matthew 25, 21. It's this parable of God's child Faithful to death. Faithful to death. And in verse 21, look at what Jesus says to him. This is what will be said. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. If you have, if you have any awe of what a glorified Jesus looks like, and you're going to stand before him, is there anything you want more than for him to say this to you? Wouldn't it just break your heart in all joy forever to hear Jesus look at you and say, well done. To me, uh, just slay me now. I mean, that's, that's just it. That's, that's it. That's the crown. That's the treasure for Jesus to say, well done. And so Paul says, that's where we need to look. That gives us courage, that healthy fear, that passion to please him will motivate us to be reconcilers. Courage from fear, not only courage from fear, courage from love. Look now at verses 11 to 14. Verses 11 to 12 remind us of a bigger picture of what's going on in 2 Corinthians. Paul has to deal with basically false teachers who are constantly condemning his apostleship. So he's having to argue for himself as a valid apostle to this church that you'll remember he planted, that has known him for years and years and years. He, sh he shouldn't have to be doing this. So he says in verses 11 to 12, I, I, don't, I shouldn't have to prove myself again to you. 
In, fa- in fact, I, instead, I, you, should be boast, you should be celebrating with us for what God's doing in our mission, in our ministry. And then in 13, you see him dealing probably with one of the accusations. What does he say in verse 13? For if we are, what are those next two words? Beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. So probably, what's one of the slanderous accusations he gets? It's something like, Paul's, he's crazy. He's insane. He's too intense about this stuff. Really, Jesus all the time? Really suffering? Really going to plant a church? Really all these risks? Isn't he too, he's too religious. Back it down, Paul. You care too much. Uh, Paul, Paul faced the same kind of accusation when he was a prisoner before Festus, the governor. Look at Acts 26, 24 to 25. You can read a greater speech and Paul's, <laughs> I love it how Paul's trying to evangelize the dude that has him in custody. <laughs> He's unstoppable. You put Paul in jail, he's like, it's just a new missionary trip. Um, Festus says with a loud voice to Paul in 26, 24, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning's driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking what? True and rational words. Take it back to 13, verse 13 now. If we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind... It's for you. So he's being accused of being crazy, too passionate. And he says, if I'm passionate, why? I'm passionate about God. It's for him. And if I'm in my right mind, which is in context here, it's persuasion. I'm working really hard to explain, argue for the truth of the gospel so that you'll trust Jesus. If I'm in my right mind, Paul says, it's for you. My passion burns. It's for God. My skill to do this as good as I can to reconcile is for you, and here's why. Look at verse 14. We read that first phrase with me. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. What controls him? The love of Christ. That word control is unique. In some translations, it's compel. Um, one way it was used in the ancient world was if uh, you had livestock, Okay, and say you want to mess with your cow or something. You make this funnel, right? So you got a wide opening. You can see this in rodeos or something sometimes. You got this wide opening. You chase your animal into the wide opening, and what does it do? It, it funnels him in to where you want him to go. That's, that's a word. The, the love of Jesus funnels me in to where I should go. There's a wideness to it that sucked me in, and now it's, taking me places. I wouldn't have necessarily chosen these places. There's a compel to it. But the love of Jesus is saying, you gotta go there. You gotta go there. Ooh, doesn't that feel like reconciling? I don't wanna, I don't wanna do this. <laughs> I don't wanna face this. I don't wanna say this. But the love of Jesus is like, the love of Jesus compels me so the only way this is, is going to work, I mean, I just put ideas in your head. The love of Jesus should compel me to reconcile. That's not going to work. What has to happen to you? Do you feel the love of Jesus for you? Do you feel just 
impossibly loved. Do you feel it? If you're a Christian, you're supposed to just be like taken aback by how loved you are. Verse 14, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. You want to see the love of Christ? Let's look. We've concluded this, that one has died for all. Where do you see the love of Jesus? He died for all. Look at, verse, look at Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in this. Next phrase is really important. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, little, little question. Did Christ die for you when he knew you'd start to come back? Is it kind of like, say you're sorry and I'll die for you. I'm watching. Or did he die for you when your heart was still raising dual middle fingers? That's what sin's like. Is that when he died for you? Did he die for you when you were like on your way back? Or did he die for you while you were the raging enemy? Did he die for you when there was still some hope and you were like, well, they might turn into something? Or did he die for you when there was nothing good at all? Nothing that could deserve his love. When Paul says, one has died for all, that all there is all kinds of people. All kinds of people. You have the worst past in history. That doesn't stop the power of his death for you. You're the rejected, the loser, the outsider. You're the hypocrite, the one who's been at church forever and finally you're waking up. You're the, you're the anything. You're the anything. Could Christ's death work for you? All, all, all. He died for all. That means that's the wideness of his love. It's indiscriminate when it comes to human distinction. The offer of the gospel is made to you he died for all, and if you taste that, why would he do that for you? Why would he die for enemies? It's love. I mean, we sang it this morning. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. You would lay down your life that I would be set free? You see what Jesus has done for you, and that love takes over you. You're supposed to be amazed by the love of God. So I don't like to talk like this. It feels cheesy when preachers say, let me speak for God. God wants to tell you, but, but he does. This is his word. He wants to tell you, if you trust Christ, that you're more loved than you can possibly imagine. So faithfully loved. And what we tend to do, I think, is we tend to base his love for us on how we're performing day to day. Like if I feel like my sermon was an A minus, God might still love me. If I preach a D, into the corner, you know? Or if, if you did your devotions, God loves you. Or if you feel like you have your life together, God loves you. But if you were a train wreck dumpers fire last week, the love is over. Is that how it works? If it was how it worked, none of us in the room are loved. You never had a day that good. It works because Jesus every day was that good. Every day. 
And if you trust him, you're in him and you're loved. And you remember, he died for me when I was the worst, which means right now when I'm trying a little bit, guess what? He loves me. And when you see that grace for you, what's it gonna do? It's gonna compel you and how you relate with other people. Jesus showed me grace. Jesus came after me at great cost to himself. Guess where that's gonna take you? Scary places. Jesus suffered to have me as his own. Guess where that's gonna move you? I'll do it too. The love of Christ compels us. This is why he died, verse 15. He died for all that those who live, that's those who trust in Christ, might no longer what? Live for themselves, but for him who was, for their sake died and was raised. Hey, guess who you don't live for anymore if you're a Christian? You don't live for yourself anymore. Let's all confess. I actually kind of do. Well, the core of who you are, right? Your mission as a Christian. I don't live for myself anymore. I don't live for my own convenience anymore. I don't live, I don't, I don't live for my wins or my power anymore. I live for him now. His love can compel me to go wherever he wants me to go. Does your heart say that to him? I'm asking myself too. Will you go where he compels you from the grace of his love? Do you remember falling in love with someone? I remember one night in Massachusetts. It was like three in the morning and I had somewhere to be, but I was so into this girl named Marsha. I was leaving notes on her car and stuff, buying flowers and stuff. What am I doing? I don't have a budget for this. I don't have any money. Um, I should be getting sleep. I'm in school. I don't care, right? Who cares? I love her. Remember that? Remember that? It's easy to forget that, isn't it? And then that love turns into children and... Now I really don't own myself anymore. <laughs> I love my kids. But it's true, when your heart is given to somebody and you love them, when you love them, guess what you find yourself wanting to do? When you're in love with somebody, your friend, your spouse, your kid, your anybody, when you're in love with them, do you want to live for yourself or do you find joy in not living for yourself anymore because you want to live for them because you're so into them? It's obviously the second. Are you so amazed with the love of Jesus that you're like that for him? Jesus, I know, I, what can I do? You love me so much, what can I do? Where can I go, where can I talk, what can I give? I, I just love you, because you've loved me so much. Doesn't that give you courage? If you're just fired up with the love of Jesus, couldn't you, wouldn't that compel you to places you wouldn't go normally? Courage to reconcile. Courage from fear, courage from his love, now courage from what God is doing. This is so beautiful. I'm sure you've anticipated already. Look at verse 19. This is what God is doing. In Christ, God, what's he doing? He's reconciling the world to himself. In context, I think here, world means all kinds of people. Doesn't matter who. 
Doesn't matter where. Come on. He's reconciling the world to himself. So remember, our, our shoulders turned away from him. We doubted him. We rebelled against him. We've sinned against him. And his shoulders had to turn away. He's just. He's holy. But he has this incredible plan where he can retain perfect justice and still turn his shoulders and his face to us. And in that plan, take his hands and turn our shoulders and our face to him and be reconciled face to face with the holy God again. That's what God is doing. So how can God be, if it was his holiness and justice that had to turn his shoulders, how can he still be just and yet turn his face towards sinful people like you and I? One of the greatest verses in all the Bible, verse 21, this is how. First three words, 21. For who? For our sake. This is love. He's doing this for us. For our sake. He made him. Who's the first he? Has to be the father. The father made the second him. Who's that? Jesus. To be sin who knew no sin. So when Jesus lived his life, how much sin did he know? In other words, how much did he do? Zero. You know, I saw a poll the other day that evangelical Christians, some percentage of them were like, did Jesus ever sin? And a big percentage of them were like, oh yeah, he sinned like the rest of us. Let me just make it clear for you, okay? Gospel doesn't work. There is no gospel if Jesus sinned. He never sinned. He was perfect. He did what we couldn't do. He knew no sin. But now this next phrase just drops like a hammer. He made him who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus, to be sin. What does that mean? What does that mean? Imagine for a moment the gnarliest sins, ugliest sins some Christian out there has committed. In a true, uh, who wrote Amazing Grace? Living my name, Newton. And what did he do? What was his first career? Slave, traitor. What's on his resume? What has he done? Wicked, 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 abominable, horrifying, ugly things. If we saw pictures or images of what he has done, um, if we didn't know his name and sing his song, if we saw pictures and images of what he'd done, we'd be like, Light him up. Light him up. Send him out. Burn in hell forever. That's what our hearts would say. And he deserves it. And on that cross, 2,000 whatever plus years ago, Jesus was looked at by the Father as if he was the slave trader and treated as such. This is what slave trading deserves. Boom. And that would be awesome if it was just the one guy. If all we had in the Christian story was Jesus saved John Newton. And that's it. We'd all be like, it's pretty credible. I wouldn't have done it for John Newton. Let's all go to hell. We'll be amazed. <laughs> Jesus did it for, I don't know the number. God told Abraham it would be like the sand, like the stars. David, did he do it for David? 
Yeah. Stole that man's wife, butchered that man. You do it for David? Jesus was treated like a wife stealer on the cross. What about you? What'd you add? I added my little pitiful pride, my manipulating, my selfishness, my backbiting, my little me party. Disgusting. What'd you add? A lot. And Jesus is there taking it all. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for our sake so that in him, what do we become? The righteousness of God. This is the trade of the gospel. Jesus says, I'll take your sin and you can have my perfection. God looked at him like he was us and now he looks at us like we're him. And so can God be just and still be reconciling? Hey, come here, you criminal. I'm turning your shoulders toward me. I'm turning your face toward me because I've taken care of the sin problem. I've taken care of it. Let's be face to face. And in the face of this, can you trust him? Remember, part of the sin thing is that we won't trust him. We don't think he's good. And so we turned away. Can you trust the God who gave you his son? and treated him like your sin? Can you trust that love? You can trust it. You can trust that love, you can turn back. Do you see God wanting to reconcile with you? Let's be face to face, be my child. I took care of every problem. I love you, trust me. Trust me, will you come to him as you look at the cross? God is reconciling the world to himself and it changes everything. Look at verses 16 to 17. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though he once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul here is bringing up his own story. What did Paul think of Jesus when, back when Paul was the Pharisee? Now, you're a fraud, right? You're a fraud. I'm going to punish all people who follow Jesus. And then Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and, whoa, did Paul become a new creation, Incredibly so. It's one of the great apologetics for the reality of Christianity that Paul, the Pharisee, becomes Paul the apostle. Amazing. And now his point there in 17 is, learn from my life, if you're in Christ, verse 17, you're new. The old has passed away, the new has come. You can let go of all that hostility to God, hostility to others, all that brokenness, let it die on the cross. You're new now, you've been reconciled to God. You're a child of God and the righteousness of Christ. Everything has changed. That's what God is doing. Don't you love it? Now here's the second part of what God is doing. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and here's the second part, drum roll, are you ready? gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Or look at it again, the end of verse 19. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, little quiz. Who now has the work of reconciliation that God is doing. I just wanna say apostles, because then I don't have to do much, and that'd be easier. Problem is, they're dead. 
If God wants to reconcile your neighbor, there's a message of reconciliation, right? What's the message? Verse 21 is a great summary. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. There it is. It's a message. Hey, be reconciled to God. Who's supposed to take that message? Let's just make it harder. Go ahead and say it with me. You can say it loud or you can say it silently yourself, but just hear your own voice. Say, I am. I am. Who's supposed to take that message? I I am. I am. In fact, we're ambassadors. Look at verse 20. Ambassadors. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. This is crazy. You get to speak for God. God actually speaks through you. Old, Old Testament, special people were prophets. New Testament, we're all prophets. We all speak for God. We have his word. We can speak it. God makes his appeal through us. That's incredible. Think of an ambassador. We all know what an ambassador is, right? What are some elements of being an ambassador? Number one, you work for a home country. Okay? You work for a home country. What's your responsibility to them? Well, you, you represent them, so you got to represent them accurately, right? You can't doctor the message and change it. It's not your message, you're a messenger. So you got you, you to represent the home country accurately, the heart and the words, Okay? You know what nonverbals do, right? Let's try this one on. I had a professor who used to do this. Let's be reconciled. Okay? Uh, I told the message we're supposed to be reconciled. Yeah. What else did I say? You don't want to be reconciled. So we have a responsibility to the home country to have a heart and a message that fits the job. And then we have responsibility to the, the new country, too, because we don't live at home anymore, right? If you're an ambassador, you don't stay at home. Where do you live? Some crazy place like this world, because <laughs> my home's not here anymore. You remember that one? Just passing through. So now you live here, and what, what does an ambassador owe the new country where they live? If you're an ambassador to wherever it is, can you just live by your own, can you just talk the way you talk at home? Home lingo? Or do you have to try to translate this somehow? You have to try to communicate the heart and the message of the home country to the new, to the new people. You gotta show them the, the truth and the desires of the country you represent to these new people as best you can. That's what we are. That's what we are. We have to know that message of who Jesus is and what he's done, and we gotta speak it clearly. And we gotta have the heart also, right? of reconciliation. We don't want to be like, Jesus loves you, sorry. No, no, no. What would the heart of reconciliation look like? Well, look at these words Paul gives. God makes his appeal through us. What's an appeal? Come on, I want this for you. I want your shoulders turned. I want you, I want you to have face-to-face with God. Uh, we implore you, Paul says. We implore. Come on, it's a sympathetic um, Heart open kind of communication. I want you to know the Lord. Who's given you, who's given us this job? The God who's reconciled us has given us the work of reconciliation. Can you find courage in these words to do that? Courage from what? 
fear. You're going to stand before the Lord. Do you have a passion to please him? Persuade others. Courage from his love. Does the love of Christ, are, are you amazed by the love of Jesus for you? Dying for you. Does it compel you? Take you places to reconcile. Third, do you see what God is doing? God, God's a reconciler, right? It's not me. It's not you. He's the ultimate reconciler. He has reconciled the world to himself through Christ. But he's given us the ministry. He's given us the message. And the fact that he's given us that job. The job to do what he's already done gives us courage. Three steps, conclusion. Number one, if you're not reconciled to God in Christ, or even if you are but you don't feel like it, just turn to him again. Feel his hands turn in your shoulders, turn in your face to look at him, see what he's done for you in Christ, know his love. You're reconciled. You're forgiven. He doesn't count your sins against you. He loves you right now, today. Second, cultivate that courage. Do you want to please him? You're going to stand before him. Are you compelled by his love? Third, share the message and cultivate the heart. Some of us just need to be like, hey, whoever, let's get lunch. You've known me for a long time. I, just, I need to tell you something that's really important to me, and I've kind of been afraid to do it. Can I tell you what I think of Jesus? Or for some others, maybe it work better to be like, hey, will you come to church? We'll go to lunch afterwards. Or maybe it's something I never thought of. You'd be creative. You're the ambassador to your neighborhood, whatever that neighborhood may be. If you want help, I'll do my best to help you. Share the message. Last one, cultivate the heart. Do you have a heart of a reconciler when it comes to your enemies? This is where it lands. Remember, we can't be like this. Hey, be reconciled to God. Too often our lives are doing that. Our world needs reconciliation so bad. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers. Peace. Makers, they'll be called children of God. Do we have the heart of a, rec- a reconciler when it comes to em- enemies like um, Republicans, like Democrats, like the X, whatever, the X whatever, like the person next to you? Let the gospel land. Let the gospel land. How hard was it for Jesus to reconcile you? To what, to what cost did he go? Easy or hard? Hard. Because he loves. Will you go like he's gone for you? Will I? We need to have the heart of reconciliation. And sometimes it starts like this. Maybe you need to confess sin to somebody. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness from somebody. Maybe you need to say, man, we went off the wrong path and I'm really sorry for my part. We've been giving each other shoulders. Can we turn face to face again? That's what the gospel's done for us. May we find courage in the reconciling love of God for us in Christ to share the message of reconciliation and show the heart of of reconciliation that we have in the gospel. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for the price that you would pay to be reconciled to us. We thank you so much that you have paid all our debts in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you so much for the love that you have that is just incomprehensible for us, that you forgive us. Lord, we thank you for the honor of being, able, being your children who can take uh, part with you in this work that you are doing to reconcile people to yourselves. Lord, give us the courage to reconcile. Give us the courage to speak your gospel and give us the heart that your gospel resounds with. An open heart, a loving heart, an imploring heart. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.